you know, my mom said that in some cases I would be the only native person that some people would ever meet, which continues to be the case, and that I needed to represent our our people well and in a good way. Welcome to Sidebars, Kilpatrick Townsend's limited podcast series focused on women in patent law. I'm April Isaacson, a patent litigator and partner in the San Francisco office. And I'm Kim Davis, a patent prosecutor and partner in the Atlanta office. We're here to discuss the gender gap in the patent bar and have candid conversations with female patent practitioners on their career paths. Welcome back to Sidebars. I'm April Isaacson. Today, in honor of American Indian Heritage Month, Kim and I are interviewing Bree Blackhorse. Bree is an enrolled member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. She focuses her practice on Native American affairs and litigation and is admitted to numerous tribal courts. Bree has experience in a wide range of cases, including criminal and civil proceedings. Bree served as a law clerk to the Honorable Brian M. Morris in the United States District Court for the District of Montana in Great Falls, Montana. While attending Seattle University School of Law, Bree was co-founder and editor-in-chief of the American Indian Law Journal and president of the Native American Law Students Association. Bree has worked as a youth advocate and case manager for United Indians of All Tribes Foundation, where she worked with formerly homeless young adults in transitional housing. Bree also served as a judicial extern to Chief Judge Teresa M. Pooley in the Tulalip Tribal Court and as a legal clerk in the Office of Tribal Justice at the United States Department of Justice. Bree has been recognized as a Washington rising star and for Native American law by Super Lawyers Magazine. She was also recognized in 2022 as one of the best lawyers, ones to watch for Native American law. Bree was a recipient of the Public Service and Leadership Award from the Washington Young Lawyers Committee of the Washington State Bar Association and as a 40 under 40 by the National Center for American Indian Economic Development. Bree, we are so honored to have you with us for this very special episode. Welcome to Sidebars. Uh, thank you. And I'll go ahead and introduce myself in my native language. Oki Niapskapi Pekani Nidandigo Shishkanapi. My Indian name is Prized Woman, and my English name is Bree Blackhorse. Well, you certainly are a prized woman. And I will say that all those accolades that I read and what you've accomplished thus far in your career is just absolutely phenomenal, which leads me to ask the question, what made you decide to be a lawyer in the first place? Uh, thank you. So I grew up going to powwows and art shows with my parents, uh, who are both accomplished Native artists. And while at those uh, mostly powwows and um, while also at different ceremonies, you know, I'd hear various tribal elders and other tribal people speak about the different issues uh, facing Indian country, which often had legal implications and talking about court cases and court decisions um, and laws that, you know, affect Indian country. And so I saw that as the best path 
um, that I could put myself on that could, you know, best serve my community. I understand that you have a sister. I do. And my sister is a medical doctor uh, currently working at Virginia Mason in Kirkland, Washington. So we have a lawyer and a doctor in the family. Was there anything when you were younger that your parents talked to you about in terms of what would be your career paths? Yes. And this, a lot of this influence uh, comes from my mother, Catherine Blackhorse, who told my sister and I, uh, beginning at a young age, that, you know, when we were born, she dedicated us to creator and to serve our communities and contribute to our communities uh, in a way that best fits with our gifts. So my sister is really good at math and science and always has been. So my mom, you know, suggested she should be a doctor and often referred to her beginning at a little age as Dr. Blackhorse. And for me, my mom noticed that I had, you know, a gift in writing and communicating ideas. And so she thought it would be great for me to be a lawyer and referred to me as a Judge Blackhorse when we were little. I love it. She she spoke it into existence for both your sister and you. That that's absolutely beautiful. So so your sister's strength or is was more in the sciences. What were your strengths and how did you play those out growing up? So I think my strengths would be I've always been very resourceful and determined, even though public speaking continues to make me nervous. I you know, was able to speak publicly um, beginning at a young age when I was uh, powwow royalty. So as powwow royalty, you either, you know, run for the title or you're selected by a committee. And then for the next year, you travel around to different powwows and Indian country events representing your, um, your organization or your powwow. And as part of those duties during grand entry, which is um, the dancing that opens up a powwow, you'd introduce yourself and where you were from and who you represented, sometimes in front of hundreds of people, sometimes in front of thousands. How old were you when you had to start doing the introductions as part of grand entry? 13 or 14. Uh, I believe I was in middle school. So basically, you as a 13-year-old were having to speak publicly in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people? Yes. And, you know, my mom always had the expectation that we would, you know, represent our tribe well, uh, our family well, and Indian people in a good way. And, you know, at 13, 14, that might sound young, but I was often not the youngest power royalty that would, you know, be in the lineup doing introductions. You have tiny tot royalty sometimes, which are as young as three, four, five, six years old. So I figured, you know, if they could do it and do it well, so could I. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm thinking about the confidence that you were able to build during that process. And you mentioned that it, it may seem a little bit young. I don't believe it seems young at all. I love the fact that your mom instilled certain values in your sister and you early on. And we're looking at it blossom today, right? So a note to our listeners, speak those things into existence because Brie is living proof that it happens. So. <laughs> and another great thing about powwow is I started powwowing when I was in third or fourth grade and you'd have to get out there and dance your category in front of everybody. And sometimes you would might be the only dancer. So you have to get up and dance in front of everybody. Or, you know, if there was, these are competition powwows a lot of the time. And if you were in a tie, you'd have to go out there 
and do a tiebreaker dance, you know, with the other dancer you're tied with um, in, in front of everybody. And so you have to have developed confidence and self-assurance in order to do that. So Bree, tell, tell me about growing up and, and the actual decision when, so your mom has been speaking this, judge, judge, you're going to do it. Come on, judge black horse. I'm with you. And then what was the point at which you decided, okay, I'm actually going to go for this. I'm going to apply to law school and, and do everything that um, has been spoken into my life. Yeah. So I had the plan to apply to law school beginning in high school. So I did running start at Bellevue Community College. And actually from the time I was 15 and a half, so when I could legally work in Washington till the time I was 21, right before I started law school, I worked either part or full time at Nordstrom uh, in Bellevue and in the flagship uh, Seattle location. And while doing that, I went to college uh, full time as well and finished in three years because I knew where you know, I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and was just trying to get college out of the way so I could apply to law school. Just going back a little bit, what was it, do you think that your mother saw in you in particular that made her think that you're dedicated to the creator in terms of legal advocacy, for example, and calling you Judge Black Horse? I think it's my inclination to serve. Uh, so I've always, you know, helped my family out. So part of the reason Uh, I got a job is so that I could help my parents uh, financially, you know, being artists and 20 years ago at this time, sometimes it's chicken and sometimes it's feathers. And so, you know, I had income, pretty good income coming in as a salesperson at Nordstrom. So I was able to uh, help my family. And then even, you know, in high school, college, and to this day, I um, help my family, whether it's, you know, like building my mom a deck or working with them at shows and helping out at the booth. Is there anything about, uh, first of all, I love that you worked at Nordstrom, which obviously is a very Seattle company. Is there anything about that experience doing sales that helped you in terms of advocacy, for example, or just connecting with people? Yeah. So in in that job, I developed um, so many great skills that continue to serve me to this day. So I, you know, immediately have to approach a customer and make a connection with them strong enough that they'd want to trust me with the issue that they had or why they were in the store. And I'd have to listen to so I could hear, you know, what they were trying to communicate in terms of like their needs and, you know, their parameters and be able to translate that to the product I had available on the floor. And it also taught me to work with, I worked with all women uh, in my department but with a wide variety of women at all different stages of their life. And then because I'd been there so long, I would, you know, sometimes uh, be in charge. So a little bit of management skill as well. Good deal. And and definitely skills and learning to balance it all. You finished school in three years rather than four while working. I did because I take uh, classes during the summer at uh, Bellevue Community College. I went to undergrad at Seattle Pacific University, but you know during the summer, because math and science were not my strongest aspects, I I take those at the community college. <laughs> Smart, <laughs> resourceful. <laughs> Didn't you say you were resourceful earlier? <laughs> and and the math and science were 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 left for her sister, so I love it. 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. So so it seems that you were adequately prepared going into law school, right? You you knew how to advocate for yourself and for others. You definitely had strong communication skills. Um, you you definitely had work life balance down, even though I mean, arguably going to classes isn't fun life, so to speak, but you get my drift. Um, so, so tell us about law school. Did you have the wake up call many of us had uh, and realize that it was a different world or was it, was it more of a breeze for you? Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely had a wake up call. And uh, so I started law school. I was t- 21 years old, just finished working at Nordstrom. And uh, shortly before I started, I found out that I had been awarded the Douglas Nash Native American Law Scholarship, which is a three-year full tuition scholarship that Seattle University gives each year to a Native American student. And so, you know, that was a huge honor. And then, you know, during my first few months at law school, it was it was a bit overwhelming. I made a lot of really great friends to start, but, you know, everybody like knew what they were doing. They had family mm-hmm. members that were lawyers. They had done all the research. They had these desk books and these study guides and study groups and all of it planned out. And they had their 10-year plans of what they were going to do. And it was it was kind of a shock to me. I had not been in uh, an academic environment uh, like that ever before. And about a few weeks before my first set of finals, um, my 1L year in the fall, you know, I didn't have a car. So my mom, you know, graciously agreed to like pick me up and take me home because it was raining as it does in Seattle. And so, you know, she picks me up at school and, you know, I have all my books and everything and we're in the car and I'm complaining about how hard law school is and like how overwhelming it is. And, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Everybody else knows what's going on. And my mom stops her car in the middle of the street and she proceeded to then tell me that she didn't sacrifice everything that she had, you know, throughout her life so that I could be sitting in her car on a full ride to law school, crying around about how hard it is. She said, it's law school. It's supposed to be hard. And then she proceeded to go back through the generations, beginning with my grandfather, who is a Seminole Nation member as well, who survived an Indian boarding school and was the only one from the reservation to return from Korea. And she said he didn't sacrifice and survive and persevere so that you could be here crying around about how hard it is to be in law school, because that's a privilege. And then she went all the way back to my ancestors who survived the Trail of Tears from Florida to Oklahoma in the mid-19th century. And she didn't say all of your ancestors, all those people didn't survive, didn't persevere, didn't overcome, you know, horrible circumstances that you could be here crying around about how hard law school is. You know, instead you need to see this as an amazing opportunity, not only because you have this full ride, but you're going to get the skills in law school and become a lawyer and you'll be able to really, really serve your community in a meaningful way. And then she proceeded to tell me to get the fuck out of her car and not call her till I got my shit together. So I walked the rest of the way home in the rain. But as soon as I got back to my apartment, I proceeded to get my shit together and come up with a plan. And I called her and reported back. And it was a lot smoother after that. 
before that, did you feel like you kind of had to go it alone, so to speak? Uh, in a sense, so I was the only Native person in my class, and I was one of the youngest. But beginning on first day of orientation of law school, I you know made some really great friends who really helped me a lot and have actually continued to help and provide me great advice throughout my career. Because well, we talk about how important it is to have the network of people to to really be there for you. It sounds like your mother took you back to really understanding that there's so much more than just you as an individual or you as a lawyer to who you are within this world. Is that is that an accurate kind of mindset of how the shift went for you at that point? Yes. And for me, uh, dropping out was, you know, not an option. Native students in higher education have one of the highest dropout rates. And my mom, unfortunately, did not finish college. And so she wanted to break that generational curse, so to say, of, um, you know, not finishing your education. You know, I, I love your mom's words. And I wrote it down, actually. It's supposed to be hard. It's law school. I mean, I feel that we should get that. We should pull out the cricket and we should print in vinyl or cut vinyl and put that so that all of us first year associates on up to senior partners can see that. Sometimes we get in this mindset that, OK, if I'm not walking through it easily, it's not meant for me and it's not worth it. Let me turn to something else. But no, 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 it's a challenge and you overcome it. So your mom's words, I mean, they resonate with me even now listening to you repeat them. Do you still remind yourself of her words to this day where you are now? Oh, yes, all, all the time. And I actually talk to my mother every day. But I've also like learned and uh, particularly, you know, with doing this podcast reflected back throughout my career and education. And I really realized that, you know, adversity and struggle is a gift. It can yes. be a gift. And, you know, my mom also kind of raised us that way when I was in sixth grade. She, in the fall of sixth grade, she told me I was going to do cross country. And I said, I don't want to do cross country. And she said, Did I ask you a fucking question? And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. Guess I'm You're doing cross country, <laughs> but then she went on to explain why I was going like to my mom, by the way, <laughs> why I was going to do cross country, like not only for, you know, your physical development, but so that you can learn to be mentally uncomfortable for an extended yeah. period of time, which is a, such a great skill to have. And particularly as a lawyer, because, you know, we all know that, you know, at times you have to be really mentally uncomfortable for a long period of time. And learn, learn how to deal with that. I also grew up glacier climbing. And the first time I climbed a mountain was with my dad. And that was Mount Hood in Oregon at 15, I think I was 15, 14 or 15 years old. And that's uh, just shy of 12,000 feet with some very technical climbing. And, you know, we started out the parking lot at midnight and then we get up to about 10,000 feet at sunrise. And then I look around and you can see everything. And I kind of like freaked out because you realize like how high you are, how steep it is, but you can also see like where you have to go. And, you know, my dad said, you know, we came up here to summit this mountain. I'm going to summit it. You can wait here and I'll be back in six hours or you can come with me and do what we came here to do. And I pulled it together and summited that mountain a few hours later with my dad. I love what you said about adversity and struggle as a gift because I find it sometimes very hard to explain to people who want to complain because, you know, they didn't get 
two pairs of shoes for their birthday and they only got one, that having to struggle, I actually think it just builds character. And it sounds mm-hmm. like your mom really instilled that in you. I know the get the fuck out of your car, my car, that sounds like something my mom would say, honestly, <laughs> when I was a kid. But I feel like you can sit around and feel sorry for yourself and crawl up in a ball on the couch. But what good is that going to do? Right. Yeah. And I was never allowed to feel sorry for myself. And, you know, that's a mindset, that's a perspective that has continued to serve me well throughout my education and professional career. That's pretty awesome. And and it's another lesson. I tell you, I've been writing e- everything down almost to um, the point these will become mantras. I'm working on these affirmations. And that one has turned into I am comfortable with being mentally uncomfortable. (laughs) We'll do something like that for that affirmation. But um, moving on through law school. So so let let's continue. So you you had that um, mind shift. You know, you were able to reset your mind and your way of thinking about things with your mom. So tell us about law school post discussion with mom. Yeah. So I really loved law school. Um, You know, as you mentioned at the outset, I was very involved. I co-founded and served as editor-in-chief of the American Indian Law Journal. I was president of the Native American Law Students Association, and I was also on Moot Court Board. And then while in law school, I also traveled to conferences promoting the school and the scholarship in the Native community. And part of the reason I became so involved is because my mother said, you know, the school has given you a great honor and a great gift in terms of that full tuition scholarship I received and that I needed to honor that commitment the school has demonstrated to Indian country and Indian people. And I needed to represent that well, not only for myself, but for future recipients of the scholarships that the school would see it was a worthwhile investment. Do you think that some of those ideas that go back to even to when you were doing the powwows of representing more than just you and more than just your family, do you feel like that started to resonate with you when you were a teenager or did it take some more of these kind of tough talks with your mom to to get that really instilled? I mean, I was always very, very conscious of that. You know, my mom said that in some cases, I would be the only Native person that some people would ever meet, which continues to be the case, and that I needed to represent our, our people well and in a good way. Did you, did you feel like that was a little bit of a burden in a way of something put on your shoulders or more of a gift? I don't consider it to be a burden. I consider it to be a great gift and you know op- opportunity. All the time, I am so thankful that I am here. The United States government has spent the majority of the last 200 years waging a campaign of ethnocide and genocide against my people um, through various federal policies, whether that was, you know, allotment or attempted assimilation by moving Indians off reservations terminating tribes in the 1950s, sending tens of thousands of Indian children to boarding schools to break them of their culture and their language and their heritage. And I just find it so empowering to know that I am descended from warriors and from people who overcame 
the best efforts of the most powerful country in the world to dismantle and get rid of us. Bree, you brought up a a really sensitive topic, I'll say, with the assimilation. And I say sensitive because a few colleagues and I have discussed how our groups that we identify with have handled this attempt at forced assimilation, how some of us have bought into it, some of us have outright rejected it, and some of us have gone through periods, right, where we feel we have to at one point, and then there's this turning point where we realize we no longer need to. You mentioned the history of forced assimilation. Can you really unpack that for the listeners so that they can have an idea more of, of what you're referring to? Uh, yes, I can. I can do that. So uh, at the end of about the 1870s, the up until that point, the United States had a policy of moving uh, Indian people to reservations. And policymakers and lawmakers for the United States, on one side, people sympathetic to Native people saw that reservations weren't doing well, that a lot of Indian people continued to live in poverty, and that you know reservation economies weren't developing the way they anticipated. And then on the other side, people adverse to Indian interests, you know, were resentful of the fact that Indian tribes had these large reservations that were unavailable for white settlement and continued expansion westward. Um, So that culminated with one of the worst pieces of legislation for Indian country in the history of the United States, which was passed by Congress in 1887, and it's called the Dawes Act, the Allotment Act. And under this act, the United States broke up reservations and allotted out to individual Indian people a certain amount of acreage and then uh, sold off for pennies on the dollar the surplus land to uh, white settlers. And the idea was that, well, if we can make Indian people farmers, like, you know, a lot of the uh, other people moving west, you know, they'll do, they'll do just fine. And along with that is when you start to see Indian boarding schools becoming a more common practice. They dated back to the mid 19th century, but uh, the federal government began taking that over in the late 1800s. And the idea was if you could take Indian children away from their families and their people and their, you know, traditional customs and practices and put them in a so-called residential school where they could only speak English, they had to wear their hair short, they had to convert to Christianity or Catholicism that in the words of the founder of the Carlisle Indian School, you could kill the Indian and save the man. And those schools continued until the mid-1930s, at which point the Bureau of Indian Affairs was operating over 326 residential schools, which were home to over 60,000 Indian children and Indian countries still recovering from the effects of that. When you say the Carlisle School, are you referring to Carlisle, Pennsylvania? Yes. I grew up right there. Like that my high school was right next to Carlisle and my neighborhood 
had been a farm, but before that it was an Indian reservation. And I used to go in the backyard and we actually, when we would dig to, to plant things, we would find arrowheads from back when it was a, an Indian reservation. That's actually making me get chills. Yeah. And the Carlisle School and uh, the curriculum developed there served as a blueprint for the rest of the residential schools that would that would come to pass after that, including Chamawa Indian School, which my father, Terrence Gardevy, his grandmother attended. And she told him that, you know, at night she'd sneak away and she'd go stand on the railroad tracks and be real homesick uh, for her family and for her people. And she'd look down those railroad tracks and know that somewhere down at the end of them, you know, was her people, was her family, was her homeland, and that someday she would make it back there. And she did, but a lot of her friends didn't. She said when they died, they just bury them, you know, near the school or often these residential schools had a lot of sexual abuse um, of both the male and female students, and they'd bury the unwanted babies on the grounds as well. Earlier, you mentioned the Trail of Tears. I, I know people are familiar with Seminole in terms of Florida, maybe not as much with Oklahoma. Can you talk a little bit about the Trail of Tears for our listeners to make sure they understand how significant that was? Yes. So beginning in the 1820s, the United States was continuing to expand and the United States had entered into treaties and agreements um, with various tribes in Georgia, Alabama, Florida, that area of the country. But there was immense pressure to open up that land for white settlement. So the United States Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which forced the removal of the so-called five civilized tribes. So Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek peoples were all forced to march. And in the case of my people, Seminole Nation, uh, in the middle of winter across the country to Oklahoma, uh, which the United States had made their new homeland. And it's not called the Trail of Tears because the Indian people who were being removed from their ancient homelands, their ancestral homelands, were crying. It's because white occupants along the Trail of Tears would often cry and be emotionally moved by the sight of it. And uh, thousands of people died along the way. The Trail of Tears, Carlisle School, all these things. And just, I can't put myself in your shoes, but it seems like to me, I was thinking about you this morning. It's like every cell of your body is, is who you are and I am here. And I look at the fact that you got this tremendous opportunity to have this legal education and now you're doing amazing things with it. And it's all goes back, like you said, generations of, of people who have suffered and descended from warriors. I love that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's like you're the legal warrior, right? You're the descendant of all these warriors. Yeah. And I do see myself as kind of a, a legal warrior. As Native people go out and fight and count coup and do all the stuff we would have done 150 years ago. But for me, you know, there's an opportunity to fight for my people and our sovereignty and our inherent authority, uh, our resources and children, you know, in a different forum. And that would be the legal forum. And for Indian people, you know, everything's a fight and everything has been a fight and it continues to be 
to be a struggle, but I do think that it's a struggle that we are winning as tribes achieve, you know, more and more economic self-sufficiency, more and more sovereignty, the acquisition of more tribal ancestral lands, further protection of sacred sites and achievements that continue to build on Indian country and that will benefit you know, all of our descendants for generations to come. Just so much to think about because I'm mm-hmm. thinking I am here. This is who I am. Yeah. It's almost so profound. It's hard to ask questions in a way. I have to be honest Kim, to get Kim and I, both the two of us speechless. But, yeah. You know, yeah no. but, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Cause I'm thinking it's, I am here, but this is, this is who I am. Right. I mean, it's because it, it goes back to the thing and tell me if I'm wrong. I just really got the sense when we did the pre-call that like every cell of your body is who you are and I am here. Is that accurate? Yes. And being a native person is the foundation of my identity and I think has given me a unique sense of self, purpose, and determination that I would otherwise not have. I don't know who I'd be if I wasn't, you know, a native person and raised with the privilege and opportunity to power to participate in our traditional ceremonies and to travel around Indian country beginning at a young age with my parents. And not all native people have that opportunity, whether as a result of, you know, not living near tribal communities. I'm very fortunate that in the Pacific Northwest, there's a you know heavy tribal presence. So it's very easy to go find a powwow and go to a powwow and you know engage in those traditional practices. But not everybody grew up with that. And because of Indian boarding schools and then you know assimilation and concerted attack on you know native traditions and practices of the United States government and other institutions, some of those traditional ways and customs have been lost forever. And so I consider it such a privilege that I'm still able to participate in all of that and that we still have a lot of our traditional ways and practices because, you know, not everybody gets to enjoy those. And and with all of the privileges that you just outlined, and I love that you characterize those as the privileges and you recognize that, right, that it is a privilege to be able to be so connected. What I love about you, Brie, is that you understand that with that privilege comes great responsibility. And you've lived up to it in so many ways. I, I'm sorry. I know your history. I know your background, but or or you've shared with me some of your paths since law school. Can you just and I know it would probably take a full hour, but can you unpack for the listeners some of the very important cases and even positions, job opportunities that you've held since law school that have brought you to where you are today and how you're able to advocate for so many Native people? So after graduation, you know, I had a couple different opportunities fall through legal opportunities. So that's when I went to go work for United Indians of All Tribes Foundation at their La Patea Youth Home in Seattle. And as you mentioned at the outset, you know, helping formerly homeless young adults in transitional housing, be able to acquire, you know, the education, life skills, and work experience necessary to then achieve 
stable housing. And then while I was in that position, I got a phone call from a friend I had made while I was in DC at the Department of Justice, uh, my 2L summer. And he said that, you know, he knew of a federal judge that needed clerks on short notice because he had recently been appointed to the bench by President Obama. And I thanked my friend immensely. And then I followed up on that and I needed to like submit my application like the next day. And then I actually asked my current boss, Robbery Smith, for a letter of recommendation. And now that I know how busy he is, I really appreciate that he was able to turn around one same day for me so that I could apply. <laughs> <laughs> I think that says a lot about you exactly. as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then four months later, I moved to Great Falls, Montana to clerk for U.S. District Court Judge Brian Morris, which was an amazing opportunity. Uh, it was, again, challenging for me at first, but, you know, my mother's words, you know, still rang true that I needed to figure it out and do a good job and represent Indian people well. And in our particular court, because of the way criminal jurisdiction operates in Indian country, the federal court, as opposed to the state court, had criminal jurisdiction over five different Indian reservations uh, in Montana. So our docket at the time was very criminal heavy. And we're talking everything from white collar mismanagement of uh, federal funds to rape, vicious assaults, murder, child abuse, and, and so forth. And from that position, I moved back to Seattle, practiced at a small boutique Indian law firm in Seattle for four years. And I did a lot of work for tribal clients, all kinds of different stuff. But I also did a lot of civil rights work, uh, in particular representing the families of Native people who had either been killed by police or had died in jail as a result of medical neglect or lack of healthcare resources. And those cases were particularly difficult because, you know, you realize the implicit and explicit biases that still exist in all stages of our, not only our criminal justice systems, but the civil justice systems as well. Because before Washington passed some of its recent law enforcement reforms in response to the murder of George Floyd, you know, it was very, very hard to get justice on the civil side, uh, let alone the criminal side for these families whose loved ones had been killed by police officers and they were often unarmed, not threatening anybody, and experiencing a mental health crisis. And you recently filed an amicus brief for a particular matter. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes. So I do a lot of work with ACLU Washington. I'm, I've been chair of the ACLU Washington Legal Committee for a few years now. And one of the cooperating attorney matters I worked on was an amicus brief on behalf of Lisa Earl. And her daughter was fatally shot by the Tacoma police in 2016. And her daughter was not suspected of any crime. She was not armed. She was not threatening anybody at the time of her death. Her daughter was an enrolled member of the Puyallup tribe of Indians and was pregnant at the time Tacoma police fatally shot her. And the issue we filed the amicus on dealt with public records because 
the city of Tacoma had failed to disclose all of the records regarding the incident. And in the amicus brief, we argued that in this case, tolling the statute of limitations on the Public Records Act fosters government transparency and accountability, particularly when it comes to examining the actions of law enforcement. And we also highlighted out the long history of state-sponsored violence against Native people in the United States, as well as current statistics that show Native people continue to disproportionately experience racialized policing throughout our state. Of any racial group in the United States, Native American people are the most likely to be killed by police officers. I'm almost, we're speechless again. Um, and some of the other uh, advocacy that I've done over the past few years pertains to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women this nation is currently facing. So it's been in the news increasingly over the past couple of years, but it's you know not anything new. Native women have experienced violence and sexual violence for 500 years, but it's particularly bad um, in Indian country in part as a result of the racialized jurisdictional scheme that governs crimes in Indian country. So for instance, for Native women between the ages of 14 and 24, murder is the third leading cause of death. For a Native woman my age, between 25 and 34, murder is the fifth leading cause of death. In some Native communities, Native women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other ethnic group in the United States. Four out of five Indian women will experience violence during their lifetime and more than half will be sexually assaulted. And as a result of the United States Supreme Court decision in 1978 in the matter of Oliphant versus Suquamish tribe, there is nothing a tribal court can do to a non-Indian perpetrator who assaults or murders a Native woman. And statistics show that the vast majority of violence perpetrated against Indian women is by non-Indian men. Bree, if you had one thing that you wanted our listeners to take from this conversation we're having today, what would it be? So I spoke at a conference on the MMIW issue uh, last Friday, and it was a, a federal bar conference for the Eastern District of Washington, which there is a huge MMIW issue in. So much show that some people have theorized that in the 80s and 90s, there was actually a serial killer on some of the Indian reservations because there have been so many missing and murdered indigenous women whose cases often go unsolved and uninvestigated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this room was 85% white male, which working in Indian law is not something that, you know, I often walk into. So it was a little bit shocking when I did. But the number of people that came up to me and have sent me emails since that said they had no idea that this was happening or that this was something affecting our community was shocking. So for instance, in 2016, over 5,700 Native women were reported missing or murdered in the United States, but only 116 of those made it into the DOJ database. And part of the issue is that Native people have been invisible for so long. 
in the media, you know, in our schools and our education systems throughout different institutions. And, you know, that narrative is changing and we've either been invisible or were left in teepees in the mid 19th century on the plains. And there's not enough education or awareness of what tribal nations and tribal people are doing today. And not only are tribal nations and tribal people doing things that better tribal communities, but benefit the larger community, you know, as a whole, like specifically in the Pacific Northwest, all the efforts tribes make to protect, you know, natural resources and lands and so forth. So I, so I guess, I guess what I would say is take time to educate yourself on tribal nations and tribal people, or maybe the people who once were where you live or who are now there. To my point where I said, I grew up right near where the Carlisle school was. The other thing I was thinking when you were talking about all these horrific statistics is then meanwhile, you have, let's just be honest, a blonde white girl who goes missing when she's doing van life. And then there's specials on every single network about it. And you just see the the kind of vast comparison. So that was actually one of the slides. My presentation was a picture of Gabby Petito, whose case was aggressively investigated by multiple law enforcement agencies. And she was found within eight days of, um, I think, being reported or going missing. And then on the same slide, I had a picture of three other Indian women who had either been murdered or gone missing in Wyoming, which is where Gabby's body was found. And between the year 2000 or 2010 and 2020, over 710 indigenous people in Wyoming were reported missing or murdered. Even though Indian people in Wyoming make up less than 3% of the state's population, they account for over 20% of the murder victims in the state. And a report found that there is very little coverage of missing or murdered Native people. And then when they do, when media outlets do cover their stories, they are more likely to be portrayed in a negative light and to use violent language when describing them. And so one of the issues that I pointed out was comparing this missing white woman syndrome to very explicit and implicit biases in media coverage of these issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Bree, there are amazing parallels between the Native people and Black American people here here today. Many times, and it really hits home, you don't think it'll happen this way, but it hits home when you're watching the news and you realize they're talking about someone you know. I was watching the news with my son, my oldest son. He said, Mom, that's my summer camp teacher up there. She was speaking about her missing sister. Her sister has been missing now for over a year. She is begging. She's pleading for people to even launch an effort to attempt to look for her. Her cries go unnoticed because you know what happens. You look up at the TV. You see a black woman, right? And it's like, oh. Yeah, that, that's that that's there every day. It, it really doesn't matter. So what I love is that we're now what you're doing. You're bringing more visibility to the issue. I admit to you, Brie, and I don't know if it's an issue of being so, so immersed in self and your own issues. Right. So I'm so 
caught up right now in the issues that are impacting me and my world and my family and my sons, my black sons that I'm raising and the fears of allowing them to go anywhere. I mean, let let me share this with you guys. I didn't want to go on vacation this summer because I was literally afraid to get in the car with my black husband and my two black sons. We'd be pulled over. And in my mind, something terrible was going to happen. Right. So we're so caught up in what's going on with us. Bria had no clue. So thank you for bringing visibility to the issue so that we know there is that call and that we can do something about it. We can make a change. We can get involved in the efforts. So I appreciate you for sharing your story on this level. I appreciate your question to see what action item, because I'm, I'm, I guess I'm over the lip service in terms of, oh, I feel for you. No, no, no. What? Let's talk about an action plan at this point. So now what? There's a few things. Number one, I was going to do this off off tape, but I'm just going to do it here because the thing I was thinking is that I've always supported veterans rights and I really support pro bono efforts in that regard. So I'm thinking that I will coordinate with Bree for something that I can do within the Indian community um, in terms of of veterans rights. Mm -hmm. It's something small that I can do that has something I can relate to in a sense of being a veteran and and making that connection. But I feel like we all have to try to do things to move all of these issues forward. And the thing that struck me, and I'm sure Kim as well, is the use of the word privilege. Because you said that doing powwows and things like that is a privilege. And let's be honest, we have a lot of people in this world and in this country that have a lot of privilege. And they're the ones that are complaining and whining about things. And they're not, they don't have the sense of self purpose and determination that you talked about. So I just want to kind of open that can of worms to some extent. Before I answer that, and um, the veterans issue is actually super relevant to Indian country. So war after war, Indian people have disproportionately volunteered to serve our country, you know, whether it's World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and since then. And veterans hold a very special, sacred place in Indian country. So, for instance, at a powwow, at the beginning of Grand Entry, which is when all the dancers come in in a very specific order, you know, you'll have the flags at the very front, the United States flag, the Canadian flag to recognize First Nations people. That's what Indians in Canada are called. And often the the tribal flag of if you're on a reservation or if it's affiliated with a specific tribe, you'll have theirs and then only veterans and then you'll have an Eagle staff, but only veterans usually can carry those. And then after right behind the flags, you'll have all the veterans. And what I really appreciate about powwows and native culture when it comes to honoring and recognizing our veterans is that to dance in the front in the most important honored place, you, as a veteran, you don't have to be a native person. You can be a white person and, you know, dance up there with the veterans and be honored in that way. And everybody else is behind you and everybody in the audience has to stand for you. And then all veterans always have the opportunity to after grand entry and grand entry song and the uh, flag song and prayer song and all that are sung. All the veterans have the opportunity to then introduce themselves and, you know, where they're from and where they served and everybody in the audience remains standing in honor of that. Wow. 
See, I, I already know that you and I are going to be connecting again and there's going to be, there's going to be some powwow in my future, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea that was not, that was not a planted question at all for our mm-hmm. listeners. Yeah. And then, you know, when, if somebody like, if you drop an eagle feather um, on the dance floor, which is like really bad. So you always make sure your feathers are all tied down when you go out there, but that fallen eagle feather is treated like a fallen soldier. And there's a whole ceremony and song that happens um, when it's retrieved and veterans go and retrieve that feather and they retrieve it like a fallen soldier and give it that kind of honor. But, um, you know, at least in powwow, their veterans hold a very sacred, special place and are recognized and honored in many different ways for the contributions that they have made to this country. When I think a lot of times people don't really understand that the military in the United States, many of whom are enlisted, it is oftentimes the people that really don't have a lot of other opportunity. And not only do they want to serve their country, but they also look for looking for opportunities for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. Well, and for, you know, Native people, you, it's, you know, you get to be yeah a warrior and serve and protect your community, which is what we've been doing since time immemorial. Exactly. So Brie, you, you've shared with us situations where you've been the first Native person, often the only Native person. What advice do you have for our listeners who find themselves in the situation where they're the first or the only? What, what can you share with them? I want to pull some of your mom's quotes right now. I just want to <laughs> be honest, but <laughs> I want to hear from you. And if that's to echo what your mom has shared with you, we would love to hear it. So for me, being the first and being the only in a situation has oftentimes been an opportunity. It's been an opportunity to expand perspectives, change someone's biases or prejudices. Uh, It's been an opportunity to educate people on Native issues and Native people and to open up perspectives. And, you know, I really like being able to assert my native privilege in whatever circle I'm in. You can keep your white privilege. I'm going to stick with my native privilege. I love it. (laughs) And that's the moment where we're like, well, I won't say what we would say in my culture, but yes, agree. The mic drop moment. Yeah, that's the moment. I'm like, and there's nothing left to say. (laughs) Nothing left to say. Nothing left to say. Brie, I enjoyed every minute of this. I just want to thank you so much. Brie, thank you so much for taking the time with us. It's just been such an incredible story that will continue. And I know all of your excellent work will continue. And I am very much looking forward to being able to work with you on veterans issues. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed Sidebars, we invite you to check out the Kilpatrick Townsend Medicine and Molecules blog at kilpatricktownsend.com to read, watch, and listen to other related insight on patent law. We'll also put that information in the show notes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not those of Kilpatrick Townsend. Also, we would love it if you would rate us or leave a review. It helps others find the show. See you next time. Thank you.